0: We're going to be in Galatians chapter 6. This might be our last time in Galatians. Let me pray and then I'll read 11 through 18. Father, thank you for the privilege of worship, of just getting together in the morning. And tuning our hearts to hear your word. I want to pray this morning for all of us to understand what it is that you want us to know. But I want to pray especially for those here in this place who could not care less about your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in this room in the hearts of those of us who are preoccupied with things that don't matter, that you would move in the hearts in this room of those of us who are overly interested in things that do matter but don't matter as much as this. I wanna pray for all of the moms and dads that are worried about where their kids are gonna end up which is a good thing to think about, but a better thing to think about is where we're gonna end up. I wanna pray for the grandparents who are, are concerned about um, failing health, about grandkids that are being raised in a wicked and perverse generation, who are worried about their own children, who are worried about what the future holds, which are all worthy things to be concerned about, but don't hold a candle to the importance of stopping to think for ourselves whether or not we know Jesus Christ and are in real relationship with him. I want to pray for the young people in this room who are already bored to tears and don't understand why we're doing this. Help them, God, by your Holy Spirit, to tune in for a moment and learn of you. There's not a mother or a father or a pastor or an elder in this room that can change a heart. There's not a heart in this room that you can't change. So we ask that you would be pleased to be merciful this morning and work in us that which is good and pleasing to you. Faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray for this in his beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Galatians chapter 6, verse 11 says, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, But they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as... For all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. I began my journey in grace. not my Christian journey, but my journey in understanding grace in about 2009. Um, So this would have been five years after I really started teaching in church and almost 15 years after my profession of faith. um, I had a moment where I got honest with myself about this fact. Everything that I know biblically and doctrinally and theologically is not really having an impact on how much or how little I sin. If you compare James's life at 14 to James's life at 29, what you would see is different kinds of sins, but certainly no reduction in in quantity, or in fervency of avoiding them. This is the same life. Sin, feel terrible, wallow in self-pity, slowly recover from that. Sin, feel terrible, wallow in self-pity, slowly recover from that. Sin, round and round and round we went. And I had the fortune of, there were a couple of things that happened, but one is I, I met uh, a guy who uh, said something I can't I, as much as I, I know I have the freedom to say whatever I need to there's just some things that aren't appropriate and what what this guy said within a half an hour of us meeting about his own experience with that cycle made me realize oh this is not healthy and I'm not the only one who's been through it um, which which caused me to begin to reevaluate what it means to really walk with God. Uh, and these are terms that preachers use all the time. And they are things that, like the minute I say it, I know that 50% of you quit listening because you've heard it before. And, and I don't really have any answers for you. And you're, I mean, you're here, but you're not really sure why. Here we go. He's going to tell me how to walk with God. Sure. How many pastors have you heard, this is how you walk with God from? What I'm trying to tell you is something different. I'm not saying I started to learn how to walk pleasing to God. I'm not saying I started learning how to walk in obedience to God. I'm saying I started learning how to walk with God. Alongside, in the company of, in relationship with God and it's been a long, agonizingly slow process. But the reason that you're starting to think I only have one sermon that I preach in about a half a dozen different ways is because I can't come up with anything more important than this for our culture and our generation. There is a huge difference between professing faith in Jesus Christ coming to church and doing church things and learning church lingo there's a huge difference between all of that and actually having a relationship with your creator and i'm convinced the majority of quote unquote christians don't have a relationship with their creator you want to know why i'm convinced of that because i've talked to you people i've counseled with christians and i've watched christians reach the pinnacle of obedience and sacrificial service in the church and then go right over the cliff into complete apostasy why are some christians so concerned with the law keeping of others and am i someone who is overly concerned with you keeping the law paul indicates clearly I think, the true motives of of legalistic teachers in verse 12 of our passage. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So if you go to Galatia and put yourself in the, the company of any one of these churches to whom Paul is writing, What he's saying is, listen, I'm trying to give you some historical background and context by which you can understand the scriptures. So if you're not listening, I mean really, shame on you. There were Jews who kept the law. First five books of your Bible, the Pentateuch, describe the experience of God revealing himself to his creation and then eventually issuing forth the parameters of obedience if you want to know God. There were Jews who were experts at knowing, keeping, and causing other people to keep that law. Jesus comes on the scene and explodes that whole economy by saying, actually, fellas, what it's about is being in relationship with your heavenly Father. And you can only have that through me. And they disliked that message so much, from a human perspective, they killed him. Then there were people that continued to believe what Jesus had taught, especially after he came back to life and demonstrated that he had come back to life. There were folks all over Israel who began to follow Jesus and believe that what he said was true. The Jews that didn't like what Jesus said began persecuting those people. So what Paul is saying is those who would compel you to keep the law for your justification are only doing it because they don't want to get persecuted by the Jews. Now, let's ask ourselves a question. How many of you this week are going to be in serious danger of being persecuted by the Jews? Can we just get a showing of hands? Yeah. So... It seems a bit late to ask the question, but should we just dismiss Galatians as having no application to us because we're not in any danger of being persecuted by the Jews? Or is, is there some other reason a Christian might become legalistic other than fear of persecution by the Jews? I think verse, th- verse 13 helps even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So there's a, what would you call that? A, a boasting piece to legalism? So there's fear of persecution, or let's, let's not say it that way. Because that just makes everybody think of Fox's Book of the Martyrs. It's not fear of persecution. There's fear that people won't approve of your religion. Or there's this boasting piece. I think we need to explore that a little further. You guys agree? All right, let's, let's dig into that. Matthew 23. Um, we'll start at verse 1 for context. Matthew 23 1 says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. Notice that there's a distinction made there between the crowd and his disciples. The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called teacher or rabbi by others so paul brings up uh boasting in galatians 6 13 and then jesus in matthew 23 5 says they do all of their deeds to be seen by others is there a common thread there boasting doing things to impress other people there's, a, there's something similar in those, in those two, right? What is the relationship, if any, this is an important question. I might let this hang out there for a minute. What, if any, is the relationship between legalism and arrogance? In Luke 15, verse 25, Jesus has been telling a parable, and it's a well-known parable, parable of the prodigal son, which is a great title. The problem is uh, we assign the prodigal moniker to the wrong son, in my opinion. So you've got this young man uh, who's got a brother and a dad, and one day he says to his father, divide your, your, what's going to be my inheritance between me and my brother, because I'm out. And so for whatever reason, for the sake of the parable, the father does that. The younger son takes the inheritance that's going to come to him when the father dies, and he goes off and he squanders it with loose living. And he's so miserable, he winds up uh, feeding pigs to try to make a living, And he's so hungry, he contemplates eating the pig food, but doesn't do it for fear that he'll be killed for stealing from the pigs. So short version of the story, that's where licentious living gets you. Degraded to the point, dehumanized to the point where you are less valuable than livestock. That's where licentiousness gets you. That's where freedom to do whatever you want with no regard to the will and commandment of God gets you every time. Back home, there's another brother, the older brother, which means nothing, right? Could, Jesus could have switched the two around. It really, I think, is it's not that older brothers tend towards this more. Believe me. <laughs> this kid stays home, stays obedient does whatever dad tells him to. The younger brother, off squandering his wealth with loose living, now eating, well, afraid to eat pig food, comes to his senses and realizes, even the people that serve in my father's house are treated better than I am. I'm going to go home and become a servant in my father's house. So that's kind of humility and repentance at work, right? So he gets up, he heads home. The older brother has been there the whole time. Just plugging away, right? The father sees the younger son coming from a long ways off and runs to meet him, embraces him, and the younger brother, the younger son says his prepared speech, he's like, alright, I worked on this. Make me a servant because I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. So, He's almost got it, right? Like he's so close to having the humility bit in in place and he does a great job of expressing it. The issue is he was never worthy to be called a son. It's not that he's no longer worthy. It's that he never was. His heart never belonged to the father. But the father meets us in mercy with the best we can come up with, doesn't he? So we pray these prayers, and they're like, you know, almost true. And the Holy Spirit takes it, and he makes it true, and he owns it to our heart, and he takes it to the Father. And the Father runs to meet us halfway, at least. He embraces the younger boy, puts a ring on his finger, a new robe on his back, and brings him in and kills the fattened calf, and they start to party. Okay. The older son was in the field, Luke 15, 25. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Well, what's going on here? And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. The father again comes to The son. The older son now, his father came out and entreated him. That means his father came out and pleaded with him to come in and celebrate the return of the younger son. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father, To his father, he said, look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, but with this, when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Listen. Your heavenly father throws a party when sinners come home in repentance. What happens in your heart When you roll up to the house and hear music and laughter and see that wicked person wrapped in a new robe, wearing the riches of Christ. What happens in your heart when you roll up to the house and see that wicked person wrapped in a new robe and wearing the riches of Christ. What happens in your heart tells you everything you need to know about how much legalism is at work in you. They don't deserve that. It's just another way of saying, pay me what you owe me. The older brother thinks he is owed. So here's my question. Is Paul writing a rebuke to the Galatians for falling for legalistic teaching? Is that why verses 11 through 18 are here? Or is it here maybe because Paul knows that the legalists in the churches in Galatia are going to hear this letter read? Is it also a warning to all of us where we might identify species of legalism and pride at work in our hearts. So here's the question, right? Is anyone here struggling with forgiveness toward someone else? What is boasting? Does anybody know what boasting is? Like we have, I think we. Have, if you're like me, you get a mental picture of it in your mind, what boasting is. But to define it is actually a little tricky because I don't, like the dictionary didn't define it the way I expected it to, which would be like bragging, uh, uh, arrogant proclamations of self-worth, boasting. The dictionary defines it speaking in a proud or admiring way. I mean, I have to yield to the dictionary, right? Boasting is speaking in an arrogant I'm sorry, a proud or admiring way. Well, Paul says in Galatians 6, 13, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They want to speak in a proud or admiring way in what they've accomplished in someone else's flesh. Okay, Jesus says in Matthew 23, 5, they do all their deeds to be noticed or seen by others. And we'll go back and hit those two again because you need to see the common thread between them. Paul says in Galatians 6:13, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Jesus says in Matthew 23:5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Do you see the common thread? We're not in danger of being persecuted by the Jews. Amen? We're okay as far as that goes. But the instinct to gain the approval of other people is certainly operating in our hearts. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Why? To gain approval from those others. They're not doing horrible deeds to disgust the people around them. They're doing religious deeds to impress the people around them. Then Paul says, these Pharisees desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh." So so here's what I'm seeing. It starts in here with, I gotta do stuff that impresses people With me, but eventually it mutates into I gotta get other people to do stuff so that other people will be impressed with me. This thing grows and mutates and gets worse. Your Bible is telling you that these two things, legalism and arrogance, are closely related. Is the older brother in Luke 15 boasting? Listen to verses 29 and 30 from Luke 15. These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Does the older brother want to relate to the father in terms of mercy or in terms of work? I did this, he did that. I should be the one having the fattened calf killed, for me. I should be the one wearing the robe and the ring and having a party thrown. Is that boasting? to speak in a proud or admiring way so what does paul boast in galatians 6:14 far be it from me to boast <laughs> except in the cross of our lord jesus christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So what does Paul boast in? Verse 14. He boasts in the cross, not in himself, not in his deeds. So he, I mean, is he setting up a juxtaposition or is it just my imagination? What do we think we are owed? what do we think we are owed? Does the Bible say anything about what we are owed? Right. And you're like, well, he's asking, so probably the answer is yes. But I got, I got that far and I thought, ooh, I've got a better question. Because the Bible says a lot of things about what we're owed, right? We're sinful and what we're owed is an eternity in hell. But then I thought, Well, this is a better question. What does the cross say about what we are owed? What do you see when you look at Christ on the cross? Not with your physical eyes and hopefully not just picturing Jim Caviezel in uh, The Passion of the Christ, but in your mind's eye as the Bible describes the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. What do you see? Do you see somebody enduring some discomfort? Do you see somebody struggling a little bit? Do you see somebody a little embarrassed? a a, a bit bugged by the way he's being treated or in the providence of God did not it so work that the son of God suffered the most horrifying cruel humiliating death humanity could come up with that he lived long enough to be nailed to that cross is actually amazing. He couldn't carry it. Simon had to be indentured to carry the cross. So by the time Jesus is on it, bleeding profusely at death's door already, he was unrecognizable to the people who stood there. In Isaiah, it says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted. His visage was marred. They had plucked his beard out. Do you know what it looks like when that happens to somebody? Plucked is the wrong word. It's the scalping of a man's face by sheer force. They had ripped his back to shreds. He had been blindfolded and beaten so that they could say, prophesy, who hit you? Have you seen somebody that's been punched once real good in the face? Sometimes they're unrecognizable. And he hangs there, his arms stretched out. He's naked, by the way. I hate to break it to the Roman crucifix. There was no loincloth it's complete humiliation so let's see when you look at the cross do you see the pleasure of God is this is this God just painting a picture of how happy he is generally speaking with humanity okay do you see some minor infractions being paid for on your behalf Or do you see the beloved Son of God enduring the wrath of God being poured out on himself? Why does Paul boast in the cross? Isn't that an odd thing to say? Paul boasts in the cross because he never loses sight of what happened there. Listen, listen, listen. What you were owed was paid on the cross. That's what you were owed. That's what I was owed. That's what all of our deeds have earned. Legalism, whether you're a Jewish Pharisee or a Christian Pharisee, is about arrogantly expecting people to pay you what you're owed. I understand. Listen, I understand that Paul is addressing, by all appearances, the genuine believers in the churches of Galatia. But I take this passage as a final warning to myself, and so should you. Legalism, whether you're a Jewish Pharisee or a Christian Pharisee, is about arrogantly expecting people to pay you what you're owed. And there is a sequence to it. Follow me. It starts out like this. Notice me. Be impressed with me. Admire me. Think highly of me. Approve of me. Wish you were more like me. Talk with other people in glowing terms about me. Seek to ingratiate yourself to me. Be intimidated by me. And finally, worship me. That's legalism. You disagree? Listen to Romans 1. 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became Futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Listen, listen to this, please. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I'm going to read it again. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the only glorious person, God. They exchanged that glory for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Legalism happens when we forget what we are actually owed. So there's a diagnostic here a way we can kind of sniff out our own legalistic tendencies and eradicate them. So in Galatians 6, 14 and 15, Paul says, Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Verse 15, look right at it. Last few words there. But what counts? What counts? Not circumcision, not not circumcision, but a new creation. There's only one other time in Scripture where Paul says this, and it's in 2 Corinthians 5 17. And this is like, you know, one of those parables, Christian coffee cup painting memory verses that everybody should know. If anyone, therefore, is in christ they are a new creation old things have passed away behold new things have come here's the diagnostic you ready because you're going to be accountable for this once i give it to you here's the diagnostic toward whom Toward whom do you struggle with forgiveness? And how can you tell? It's the person whose relationship with God you cannot celebrate. Why? Because they're not doing it the way you would. Well, now you're the legalist. Now you're the one who thinks you're owed something. So as I'm sifting through my own heart, thinking about that question, toward whom do you struggle with forgiveness and how can you tell? And I realize, oh, it's the person whose relationship with God I cannot celebrate. I thought, when do we know, in Luke 15, when do we know that there's a relationship problem between the older brother and the father? You know when I knew? When you're reading that parable, and the older brother gets in hearing range of the house. And he's like, wait a minute, there's, there's music coming from in there. Now, what would you do? It's music. Let's go. Let's go check it out. You know there's a relationship problem. The moment the brother gets in hearing range of the house and calls a servant over, and goes, what's going on in there? That's when you know. I suspect the older brother already knew what was going on in there because he's been waiting for it with bated breath. Eventually, that such and such is going to come back and I know what dad's going to do. It's going to welcome him back and act like none of this ever happened and all my righteousness isn't going to be worth anything. And the minute he heard the music, he's like, That's my little brother's favorite song. <laughs> I know what's going on here. How do you know you struggle with forgiving someone else? Well, you know, because you want them in bondage. The older brother liked it better when the younger brother was off squandering his wealth. And he loved it when the younger brother was resisting the temptation to eat the pig food. You would prefer they not repent. You would prefer they not find forgiveness. You would prefer they never come home to God because then you'd be right. You legalist. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Because what you were owed was paid at the cross. The old passes away. The new things come. So what, what is that? That means I'm laying down my merits. I'm laying down my righteousness. Recognizing that even that is filthy rags. That's old. That's got to go away. New things have to come. Boasting is crucified. I'm not better than anyone. I don't want anyone held in bondage to my approval. Now, look at me. You have to crucify that in your own heart, don't you? I mean, I would prefer people be a little bit afraid of me and like want to impress me left to myself oh sit there and act like I'm the only one that's fine <laughs> Galatians six sixteen. as for all who walk by this rule peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God take it to the bank your life is marked by anxiety and anger to whatever degree you're a legalist That's not true. I have a chemical imbalance. No. No, you don't. You have a justice imbalance. You have a righteousness imbalance. But your life is marked by anxiousness or anger or some horrible combination of the two to whatever degree you're a legalist. I want peace and mercy, not anxiety and anger. Amen? Amen. All right, so you have to appreciate Paul's use of irony here. Did you see it in verse 16? Six chapters, we have marched down this road, and I've gone, Oh, over here is license, Ooh, over here is legalism, this is liberty, right? We're not in bondage to the law anymore. The law was a tutor leading us to Christ. And now it serves to lead the righteous in works of obedience, but it is not a means of gaining righteousness. Stop being enslaved to the law. And Paul, this stink pot, finishes the book by saying, all who walk according to this rule. He could have said law, but he's too cute for that. And the word in the Greek means straight line. All who walk by this rule, what, what's the rule? Boast in this. Boast in the cross. Never lose sight of what happened there. What you were owed was paid at the cross. That's what you were owed. Amen? Now, what is the heart of God the Father toward you when you finally just turn and start coming home? I don't want what I'm owed. I just want to be a servant. And he wraps a robe of righteousness around your shoulders and puts a ring of nobility on your finger. And he says, we're going to celebrate. The legalist doesn't understand what they're actually owed. And so angry and anxious, they demand that everyone around them do what they say. That should not be us. That should not be our heart. Peace and mercy be upon all those who live in relationship with the Father. Amen. Amen.